in face of some opposition he was facing as he led and pastored the church in Ephesus. And um, I'll say this, I was talking to somebody this week uh, about this, somebody that uh, struggles uh, with going to church and they go, but not real often. They're, they're disillusioned by some things, and people in the church have hurt them over the years. And the truth is, uh, churches are imperfect. People are, are imperfect. And there are going to be people that will hurt you. And rest assured, it's going to happen. And uh, I was talking with them this week, and uh, they were stre- struggling with some issues uh, about how uh, there's a lot of hypocrites in the church. And I, you know, my comment always to that is, well, isn't that where you want them to be? <laughs> that's where they can get some help. You don't send a sick person somewhere other than the hospital. You know, you send them to the hospital, that's where they get help. And uh, to say you don't want to go to the hospital when you're sick is, is kind of ridiculous. But anyway, um, but they were hurt. They, there, were some, there was some disillusionment. And I'll tell you this, uh, churches are not perfect. They are not. They're made up of people who uh, our, our hope and our goal is that we charge and exhort and encourage them to love the Lord their God with all their hearts and to, because of that, as that motivation sinks into them, because of that, that they live in such a way that they are pleasing to the Lord. If we can accomplish that in churches, our churches will become better. I'm not going to say they'll be perfect, but they will become better at treating people well. Uh, they'll begin to treat people the way that Christ would treat them. And while we certainly cannot condone or uh, advocate sin in our churches, we can speak the truth in love. And we can encourage people and exhort one another uh, to be faithful, to help one another when we see that we're overtaken in faults, to be a help to them. And uh, to live godly is, is a a charge that quite often is given in Scripture. The Bible says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And I've known some people that uh, have professed the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible talks about the fact that there are some that Satan will sow among the brethren that he calls them tares among the wheat. And the problem with tares is they look an awful lot like the wheat. And and even uh, when his disciples... Uh, we're asking about this, about whether they should go in and destroy the, the tares. Christ said, no, leave them alone, lest you tear up some of the good fruit too. And uh, the day of judgment will come, and the day of judgment will determine uh, between the tares and the wheat. That's up to God to discern. But we, we should live godly. We should have a godly lifestyle. And Paul wrote this letter to some degree to teach uh, Timothy, or to instruct Timothy, on things he needed to be teaching the church and how they should conduct themselves in the house of God. How should they, how should they uh, live their life? Uh, I'm afraid sometimes we get our... I hate to word it this way, but in our minds, we get this mindset that we got our ticket to heaven, if so to speak, by getting saved. That we, we're stamped, we're, we're, we're locked in, we're going to heaven. And then we feel like, well, we can just live our life however we want to. Uh, we dealt some uh, weeks on the issue of repentance recently on Wednesday nights. And uh, what that means and, and how that is, uh, applies to salvation. And looking at it from a very biblical standpoint, the danger is that at some point we will begin to say, well, then it doesn't matter how we live. But the truth is it does. And one of the, one of the big reasons Paul writes this letter to Timothy 
is not only to charge him with, with doctrinal purity, to stay doctrinally sound, but, but secondly, to live godly. To live godly. To have uh, a life that exemplifies the Lord Jesus Christ. And it, it is, it is, we're living in a time where a lot, of, a lot of churches are teaching the mindset, well, you have to become like the world in order to reach the world. That is not true. Uh, last hour, we just spoke of the fact that the answer for men is the truth. It's not us becoming like them. The answer for men is this book. The truths that are found in these pages are the things that will do the transforming work in a man's heart. And so it's very, very important that uh, we have a, a message and a, uh, and a life that will exemplify the message. The Bible teaches that as Christians, we should live a life that in, in the Bible verbiage, it says, that becometh the gospel. Uh, something that when we look at the life, we can see the gospel being lived out through that life. Uh, very, very important, uh, this testimony. And so Paul is exhorting Timothy uh, to be doctrinally sound and to live godly. One of the things that he tells him about this idea of uh, how he should behave himself in the house of God, how he should be conducting himself, we find in chapter 2. And he addresses uh, him by way of an exhortation. He begins in verse number 1 and says, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all, notice this, in all what? Godliness and what? Honesty. If there is nothing else that marks the Christian life, it ought to be those two things. Godliness and honesty. Now, we don't do those things in order to become saved. But when we get saved, the Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of us. And He does a sanctifying work. He does a cleansing work. Uh, my son and I uh, are doing some... I'm trying to get him set up in a little business to do uh, pressure washing, soft washing. And we, uh, we went over to the neighbor's house the other day, right here on the other side of us, and asked him if we could just do a couple sides of his house because they were looking really, really grimy. And uh, we thought, well... Uh, we'll do it and see, maybe get some pictures, put them on the Internet, that kind of thing. And so we went over and asked him uh, if we could do that. And, and I'm going to say this, that, uh, that, that, that as long as this guy was just living in that house and not really doing a whole lot about it, that, that siding didn't get cleaned up. But then along came some people that said, you know what, we'll clean it up for you if you'll just let us do it. And the moment he said, yes, we can do it, we went over there and began to, to clean that house and it cleaned it up. Can I tell you this? That when it comes to us cleaning up our lives, oftentimes we don't have it within us to do it. The Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of us. And if we will let Him, He will do the sanctifying work. He'll begin to clean up the vessel. He'll begin to make us something that we didn't used to be. And so He goes on to say this, that, uh, that uh, we're to be praying for uh, kings and for all that are in authority that we may lead quiet and peaceable lives, uh, life in all godliness and honesty. This idea of having the life uh, cleaned up, that there's something going on there. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. 
whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ, and lie not a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and without doubting. Father, I pray that once again you will meet with us as we take a few moments to look at this passage. May there be some things that will help us practically in the day that we live that we can apply to our lives and be more of an example and a testimony for you. That having trusted you as our Savior, having put our faith in you, that your Holy Spirit will have free reign, that we will allow Him to do the work in us that He so longs to do. Bless the preaching of your Word. May it help us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's look at, first of all, verse number 1. The Bible says, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, I want you to notice the priority that Paul is going to put on what he's getting ready to say. He's saying that this ought to be a paramount thing in our lives. That before other things happen in the growth of the Christian life, this certainly ought to take place. Notice what he says here. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, notice this, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Now, it's interesting because uh, as you look up each of these individual words, when you get to the word prayers, uh, the word prayer encompasses all of the others. Praying uh, is certainly a, 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 uh, an act of worship as we spend some time uh, expressing our adoration for the Lord and recognizing His position and who He is and glorifying Him. But it also entails supplications. And supplications would be a strong request or a fervency in praying for a specific need. Uh, Lord, I need You to supply this need. I need You to meet this need. And an earnestness of giving a request to God. And this would be our supplications. And then he talks about intercessions, and this would be, uh, rather than praying something that I have a need for, to pray for someone else on their behalf. And the idea that we're to be uh, intercessors in this area of uh, praying. And then the giving of thanks, and of course ought to always be a part of our praying, uh, to be able to give thanks to the Lord for the things that He has done. And so he's speaking here uh, of uh, fervency or effectiveness, if you will, in praying, that we, that we cover all of these. And it's interesting that uh, oftentimes um, in writing, especially of the New Testament, they will make a statement or a word and then they will use uh, synonymous things or things that are involved with that word for the purpose of emphasis. Paul could have easily just said uh, to the word prayers here. He said, I exhort therefore that prayers uh, be made for all men. And people would have understood that that included supplications, intercession, and thanksgiving. But for the purpose of emphasis, he tells Timothy, he says, listen, when you pray, I want you to pray effectively. Certainly we're praying to worship the Lord. But I want you to make sure that you mention your supplications, that there's fervency in this, and there's the idea of having an effective prayer life. Not just praying for the sake of going through the motions. He's talking about how he's going to instruct the men of the church, and this is primarily dealing with public praying, that we not get up and just have repetitive or formalistic 
uh, type praying or empty praying or, or prayer that is not powerful. But there is praying that is uh, praying, uh, supplicating and asking the Lord uh, fervently for the needs. Spending time interceding one for another, praying one for another. And then spending time in thanksgiving to God. And he says, this is something that in a Christian's life, this idea of praying and praying fervently and praying effectively in these areas specifically, he said, this is something that ought to be paramount. And can I tell you this, that the highest priority of a Christian's life will always be our personal walk with the Lord. In prayer, in reading, in studying Scripture, and in meditating on His Word. This idea that the highest priority that you and I ought to have is service is, is, is not scriptural. Service comes after our personal relationship with the Lord. It certainly is a high priority, but not the high priority. The high priority, and Paul tells us here, that first of all, first of all, effective, fervent praying ought to be the top of our list. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things here about Uh, this prayer that he's speaking of that he refers to here as praying that ought to be done uh, and that is effective praying. He speaks of it being very specific for supplications, for intercessions, and for giving of thanks. He he deals with it being something that's not just an empty or a vain prayer, but very, very specific, uh, very, very powerful in prayer. And and I want us to notice a couple things. First of all, uh, who does he tell them to pray for this way? Look what he says in verse number 2. First, he says that this should be done for all men. Now, he could have easily said that. But again, oftentimes they'll make a statement, and then for sake of emphasis, they will come back and emphasize some other things and say, look, this is important, but I, want, I don't want you to miss these for sure. For kings and for all that are in authority. So we are to pray for all men. There's no doubt about that, and Scripture says that. But he doesn't want us to miss that in the all men, because here's what will happen a lot of times in our churches. We'll come on a Wednesday night and we'll say, uh, Pastor, pray for so-and-so, they're sick, or pray for this person over here, or this family member, or this friend. When is the last time that, and we really ought to make it a regular time, that in our, in our public services, when we are doing powerful praying before God, that we pray specifically for those that are in authority over us, both politically and spiritually. Now, notice what he says here. He says that we're to pray for these. For what reason? What are, we, what are we trying to accomplish with this praying? What are we praying for? And, and he tells us here, he says, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. Now, he's not just talking about uh, not having drama, not having turmoil in your life. But he goes on to clarify this a little more specifically. What does he mean by a quiet and peaceable life? Notice what he says here. In all what? Godliness and what? Honesty. We need to pray for our authorities that they will enable through their leadership for us as Christians to live a quiet and peaceable life in the areas of living godly and living holy. When we have laws that are made against us living moral and right, we need to be praying for our kings and for those in authority. In fact, before those laws are made, we need to be praying for those that are in authority over us. That we may lead quiet and peaceable lives. What does, God, what does Paul mean by this? 
that we have the freedom, the, the liberty, the ability to live godly and to live honestly. Can I tell you that the highest priority of our life, second only to our personal walk with the Lord, is our testimony before others. That we live a godly life and a life of honesty. If there's one thing that harms the cause of Christ in the day that we live, it is Christians who live carnal lives. If there's one thing that ruins the testimony and the power of the gospel message from a man's perspective and quenches the work of the Holy Spirit and grieves the work of the Holy Spirit in a lost person's heart, it is a carnal lifestyle of a Christian. Paul says, above all, first, he says, therefore, I exhort you that first of all, you pray. And when you pray, I want you to pray specifically that these kings and those in authority will help us to have the liberty and the freedom to live a quiet and peaceable life in the area of godliness and holiness and honesty. Why is that so important? Because we are to be a testimony of the gospel message before a lost world. It is vitally important that we as God's people that name the name of Christ do not live in an ungodly way. We don't go out here and live like the world and act like the world and talk like the world. And it's not because we think we are better than they are. That is not the case. In fact, the truth is I don't think there's any person in here that would deny the fact that they're nothing more than an old rotten sinner that God has saved by the grace of God. We have no right to look down our noses at people. But on the other side of that coin, we have every, every obligation to look to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I want to live godly in Christ Jesus. Because I am vitally concerned that His message go forth unhindered and unfettered, that the Holy Spirit is not quenched and that the Holy Spirit is not grieved by the way I'm living my life. In the similitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, he tells the disciples that men may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The idea that they are a city that is set on a hill. Have you ever thought about this? I've shared this before. It talks about the fact that we are salt, and but if salt have lost its savor, wherewith is it salted? And that's dealing with our effectiveness. But he goes on to say in one of these similitudes that we are a city that is set on a hill. And what's the word that's used there? cannot be what? It cannot be hid. You are a city that every person is seeing. Saved and lost, by the way. And you may say, well, I don't want that responsibility because I'm not living right. Too bad. You are a city. It is set on a hill. And men are looking at you. Whether you want that responsibility or not, they are looking at your testimony. And it may be a testimony for good or it may be a testimony for bad. But rest assured, you're, you're exemplifying a testimony to someone. And you don't have a choice to be seen or not seen. When you name the name of Christ, people are looking. So vitally important that we as God's people pray that we have the opportunity, that we're given the liberty, that we're given the freedom by those in authority to live godly, and to live honestly. These two things are critical. They are crucial to the message going forth unfettered and unhindered without the Holy Spirit being grieved and without the Holy Spirit being quenched. Very, very important. 
Now, I want you to notice not only uh, what we're to pray for, which is that we can live peaceably uh, and quietly with the idea of godly living and honest living, but we are also to pray. Uh, uh, why, uh, we also need to know why we're to pray this way. Let's look at what the Bible says here. He says, for, verse number 3, for this, speaking of this kind of praying, for this is what? Good and what? Acceptable in the what? Sight of God. There's three things I find here why we're to pray this way. Number one, because God sees it. It is done in the sight of God. Number two, it's because God considers this kind of praying good. I want to do things that God considers good. I'm thankful that it's something we can know from Scripture so that we know how to bring pleasure and please Him. It also tells us not only because it's good, but also God thinks that it is what? He says that it is good and what? Acceptable. Praying this way is acceptable to God. Is that, is that important, that, that it's acceptable to God? Well, certainly. Are there prayers that are unacceptable to God? Certainly. James talks about them. He says, "...ye ask and have not, because ye ask what? Amiss to consume it on your own lusts." That's, that's, not a God, that's not a prayer God is acceptable with. He doesn't accept that one. Uh, what, about, what about the offerings that Cain and Abel brought? Do you think it was important that God accepted them? Well, certainly. He accepted Abel's. He didn't accept Cain's. To pray in such a way that our prayer and the type of praying that we do and the motivation of our praying and the, the, the things that we are praying for are acceptable in the sight of God are vitally important. I'm thankful that the Bible says, If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. And sometimes people claim that and think, Well, I can pray for whatever I want then, as long as I do that. No, no. What we're talking about there is that if we're abiding in Christ and His words are abiding in us, then our prayers will match His will. And He will then make those things come to pass. Not that we will have the will of our hearts, but that our hearts will have His will when we pray. So we are to pray this way. Why? Because God sees it, because God considers it good, and because God considers it acceptable. What, what should, how should we go about doing this? Is there, is, there some kind of, is there some kind of method? Is there some kind of thing? Well, let's see what Paul says here. He says, uh, who will have, <clears throat> excuse me, let's back up a minute, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, uh, our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come into the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle, I speak the truth in Christ, and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, and he's speaking here in context of this type of praying, lifting up what? Holy hands. When we come to the Lord and pray, and pray this way, we are to come with a life that has, before God, we have gotten to the place where we've said, Lord, I want my life purified. I want it cleansed. The psalmist wrote it this way, Search my heart, O God. He said, See if there be any wicked way in me. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Why? 
Because the psalmist knew this. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Our praying, when we are praying this way, to be effective and effectual in these types of prayers, we need to have a life that matches in the area of holiness. He says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and without what? Doubting. We're to make sure that we have a pure heart as we come to the Lord in prayer. And that we're to do it by faith. Without doubting. Not having a lot of anxiety and wondering about some of the things that, that, that whether or not God's going to do this type of thing or not. There, there obviously were some things that Paul was addressing here with Timothy. I don't know what the situation was. He doesn't tell us in this particular letter what the problems were. But apparently there was enough of a problem that he told Timothy, you need to teach the men to pray this way. Not just in their private prayer closets, but publicly, in the service, in in their time of public service. That there needed to be a, a passion, a fervency, a power in praying. And he says, I exhort you therefore that first of all, first of all, there are problems in the church, go to powerful personal praying. There's strife in the church, go to pray. There's ineffectiveness in the church, pray. We're not seeing the fruit that God has promised us, pray. That's the first priority. That everything that this church does ought to be bathed in effectual, fervent praying. That this not be some kind of an anemic, uh, ceremonial kind of process that we go through because we're supposed to. But that there be a legitimacy to the power in praying and praying rightly. It's interesting because he he will tie this, uh, this praying and this responsibility of these men praying in church this way. He will tie this later on in this letter to some of the ideas of, of holding to sound doctrine. And can I tell you this, that I believe the lifeblood of not only our personal lives, but the life of a church, is in the effectiveness of its praying. The effectiveness of its praying. Not the amount that it does, but in how effective we're praying the way God instructs us to. Do we have the right motivation? Are we praying for the right things? Are we we sincere in our praying? Is Is our heart in tune with God as we pray? Have we, have we made a, a, a striving and a diligence to live holy and to live godly? So that the Holy Spirit can do what He desires to do? It's amazing to me in my personal life how many times it seems that I do things that I believe have hindered the Holy Spirit from doing what He longs to do. And oftentimes it's done without me even realizing it. But sad to say, there are times that I do it even though I know that it's going to. And Paul tells Timothy, he says, listen, you need to instruct these folks to pray this way. I exhort you, therefore, that first of all, <clears throat> supplications and prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men. For all men. We need to pray specifically. Specifically. 
We need to pray for specific things, for specific, specific reasons, have the right motivation. And we need to have the right heart when we come to the Lord in prayer. We're living in a time where we have not seen the mighty moving of God through prayer that we've seen in years past. We see answers to prayer, and I'm thankful for that. But there have been times throughout history that we have seen mighty works of God done through nothing more than the praying of His people. We are lacking that in the day we live. And could it be that quite possibly we have lost the ability, we have lost the mind and the heart, perhaps the knowledge and instruction of how to do so, to pray effectually and to pray fervently for God to do a work and for Him to have free reign in our lives. I hope this will help you. Little things, little practical truths that I think Paul teaches here about praying in the church. That God would be honored, that God would be glorified through it, and that we would see fruit for it. Let's stand together, shall we? We'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're thankful for Your Word. So many things that You teach us on prayer. And Lord, really, in, in a passage like this, we've just really touched the tip of the iceberg. 